To what extent is mental illness a possible cause of terrorist threats? This question doesn't tend to get asked when, a, when an attack happens. The focus, understandably, is on the victims. How many dead? How many injured? Terror groups seem to steer clear of people with mental illness, seeing them perhaps as unreliable, difficult to train, perhaps a security threat. But what about what is termed the lone actor? The Norwegian mass murderer Anders Breivik springs to mind. Breivik's initial psychiatric assessment following his arrest in 2011 diagnosed paranoid schizophrenia. A second assessment ruled that he had personality disorders. An editorial published this week makes the point that making a diagnosis is important, but doesn't on its own explain motivation. Simon Wesley is one of the editorial's co-authors. He's director at the King's Centre for Military Studies, Institute of Psychiatry, King's College London. And he joins us now. Hello, Simon. Hello there. So um, if we could start with the, the, the phrase that you, you call um, lone actors in the editorial. Um, I mean, you, you talk a little bit about sort of, you know, any common character, characteristics or traits and, and what we know about them. Could you tell us what you, what you mean by the term? Well, as you said, first of all, the kind of, of terrorist threats, the organized terrorist groups, planning mass mayhem, bringing down planes, attacking sporting events, causing huge casualties. In general, these are not associated with mental illness, they're reprehensible and horrible, but the people who carry them out have very, very low rates of mental disorders, and that's almost certainly because terrorist groups tend to screen them out for the reasons that you've described. So uh, what we're talking about then is other people, and these are people who have gone on to do awful things and, and caused you know, great harm and hurt to, to sometimes smaller numbers of people, but still great harm and hurt, um, largely off their own backing. They're not part of an organized group. They don't belong to a cell, um, but they are what's sometimes called, quote, self-radicalized, um, or alternatively, they're actually alienated or unhappy or disturbed in other ways. And we know that the people who've done these about the statistics really are very dodgy. One has to immediately say that. But somewhere a quarter, maybe 40% have uh, previous histories of mental health problems. So that's a starting point, And that, that's more than you'd expect in a random sample of the population. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, you talk, you talk in your editorial about the risks of um, speculating about a um, per perpetrator's um, affiliations or his mental health. I mean, could you talk a little bit about, um, you know, what those risks are? Well, the first thing to be careful of is the immediate rush to judgment. Someone has done something awful that we can't understand, therefore they must be mentally ill. That's a very uh, loose way of thinking. It's a shortcut. It doesn't help. Um, it's also a circular argument. So, you know, you ask, well, why did they do it? Because they're mentally ill. Uh, and, and there's a circular thing. What was the cause of it? Oh, well, it was mental illness. So the argument goes round and round. It doesn't get you very far. It's also sometimes misleading. And of course, that automatic assumption that they must be mentally ill does a disservice to the, well, millions of people with mental health problems, sometimes severe in this country, who are absolutely not going out and doing these terrible things. So we have to use it accurately and sparingly when it actually um, describes the person correctly and um, may be relevant. But the shortcut that we get often in the tabloids, and we've had it in a couple of instances recently in this country, doesn't help. It doesn't illuminate. Um, it's uh, it, it's it's not 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 the oh not the best way of trying to understand the complexity of these actions that are usually due to a large number of things and which gradually become clear as for example the judicial process unfolds 
Yes, I mean, you do talk in the editorial, Simon, about um, you know the, the need for careful media reporting. Um, and obviously, in the wake of, of attacks, you, 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 you're absolutely right. You get these sort of very emotive headlines that sort of link mental illness to, to the perpetrator's actions. But um, I don't know if, you, if you've had any thoughts on you know, what careful media reporting looks like, you know, what sort of terminology should be steered clear of. Well, I think, I think the example we should be following, <clears throat> and the Royal College is, is convening uh, a group to talk about this, is is the guidelines that exist for the reporting of suicide. Now, of course, no one can tell the press what to do, and no one intends to do that. But actually, my experience of the press themselves is they're actually rather keen not to make a bad things worse. So there, in suicide reporting now, do you remember we used to talk about successful suicides? Well, now most journalists will not use that word successful. Um, we ask people, don't put too much attention on the method because that will create sometimes copycats and so on and so forth. So these are just sensible guidelines. Similarly, in, in the area we're talking about now, um, we know that the, the, the young man in, Bur in, in Munich who killed many of his uh, school friends um, in the McDonald's, we know that he had become obsessed with Breivik. He was collecting newspaper cuttings about him. So don't glamorize them. The French, I think, are now saying don't even put their pictures in the newspapers and things like that. So it's to come up with some voluntary guidelines about how to, first of all, don't glamorize and, and um, make these people sound more than they are and be responsible about methods and things like that. They're just guidelines, no more than that. But I think it's important. And I, I was on the Breivik Commission in Norway, actually, and, of course, there, you know, the country was in the throes of, of an extraordinary crisis when the psychiatrists uh, did say that Breivik had schizophrenia, which, in fact, turned out not to be the case. And that caused tremendous consternation across the, across the whole population. It was the, the sense of shock and, and, and anger was very palpable at that point. Yes. Um, and your editorial um, talks also about sort of the UK government's counter-terrorism measures, um, what's known as its prevent strategy. Um, I wonder if you could, for the benefit of obviously our UK and overseas readers, explain, you know, how this st strategy will affect medical practitioners. Well, we have to be clear that people who are in psychiatry already have a prevent function with a small p. That's what psychiatrists do. You know, it's a, the bedrock of what we do. We often see people who have uh, mental health problems and may pose a risk of violence to themselves or others. And assessing that is very fundamental to what psychiatry does. And to be honest, this isn't really much more than that. Purely talking about those with mental health problems, perhaps um, a background that may sound like autism or early psychosis, etc. And we already have a duty to assess their risk of violence, which includes what might loosely be called, you know, terrorist uh, influence or whatever. So there's nothing new in this. The problem we have is because it's connected with counterterrorism, it's shrouded in mists of secrecy. And many people don't know what's going on. Um, they are concerned about civil liberties. They're concerned about being acting of agents of the state, etc., etc. And therefore, what we're asking for is for this to become much more transparent and open to uh, overcome many of the myths, but also perhaps shed light on bad practices, which I think probably will be happening, and also to be open and honest about what are the side effects of this program. Um, many people are claiming that it may further uh, alienate 
people already at risk of alienation. That is a possibility that we need to see good data and good outcomes for that. So that's what we've been asking the Home Office for, um, and we have made progress with this, um, and this is part of that process. Right, thank you. Um, In April this year, the psychiatrist Derek Summerfield published an article in the British Journal of Psychiatry Bulletin, and I think it's one of the references in your editorial. And Derek said it was unethical to mandate doctors to attend counter-terrorism workshops of the kind um, advocated in the Prevent Strategy. He he accused the GMC, the BMA, and the Medical Royal Colleges of a lack of ethical leadership and he said there's also a civil liberties issue here and he likened it to the McCarthyism of the 1950s USA and said um, doctors should refuse to attend. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Well um, if it was a mandatory requirement for all doctors had to do I would completely agree with Derek on that one. I'm, I'm not a fan of mandatory training for virtually anything anyway. In fact it isn't. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a thing that's provided for trust to use and we have sought clarification from the Home Office on this, and it isn't mandatory. Um, it's actually something that is advised as part of um, the, the general duty that public bodies have to uh, prevent uh, violence and terrorism, etc. All doctors already do have a duty on that, which is a legal thing, that in the same way that we have a duty you know, where there is overwhelming risk to the public to break medical confidentiality. That's part of the assessment of psychiatric disorder. And if there's no psychiatric disorder present, then that is the end of any contact we have. We are not, we are not here to uh, police extremism. We're not here as uh, policemen of the mind. We're not here to deal um, with ideology, etc. We're here to try and help uh, those with mental health problems. And I should say also, uh, going back to Breivik, of course, um, although it would be stupid to pretend that many of those being seen through these programs uh, are Muslim, but there's also, in, in fact, statistically a greater threat from the extreme right, we go back to Breivik, which is where we came in. So, Simon, one final question. If there was one thing that um, could be done now to respond to this stuff, what would it be? How do I think we should respond to this? Well, I'll tell you what we should be doing. It's what we're supposed to be doing anyway. The best thing we can do is to improve the mental health services that we offer to troubled adolescents and young people, um, because that's where many of these will come from. These are, frankly, scandalous at the moment. you know, people are talking about, well, you know, there should be immediate rapid referral to these services if anyone thought to be at risk. Well, you can ask for what you want, but until we have the resources and the people, that's not going to happen. The Chancellor, last Chancellor, Mr. Osborne, before, before in his last budget, committed £1.4 billion into CAM services. That has not yet come through, but that probably is the single best thing we could do, improve the services, make it easier for people to be referred, make it easier for them to wish to be referred, improve the treatments that they get. That will improve mental health, and if that also reduces the risk to the public of these extreme acts, so be it. You've been listening to Simon Wesley talk about his editorial on preventing terrorism. The editorial itself, Preventing Terrorism, More Data and More Openness Will Improve, Not Weaken Effective Measures, is available on thebmj.com.